Uh, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you. If you're in your Bibles, if you turn to James for me, chapter 5, we're looking at verses 7 through 12 today. James 5, verses 7 through 12. I'd like to start reading this morning, and uh, we're going to dive right in. As soon as I get these, this helpful tool. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord... See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth? Be patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. So the Bible says, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Now this takes us back to the previous section that we read last week, where the rich are oppressing the poor, they're causing great suffering, and the coming judgment for these wicked, for these wicked rich, it's coming. So what is this patience? How can we define this patience? Well, it's waiting on God. Waiting on God. Hosea 12.6 says that, So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. Waiting on God. What in the world does that look like? Well, it's the things of God, such as His return, right? Such as uh, His deliverance for us in trials. Such as His answers to prayer. We are waiting on God. This is our patience. And James gives a wonderful illustration. And I think it's very fitting for us. He talks about farmers. I know a lot of you have farmed or are farmers or own farms at a time. And we're surrounded by farms. I've had the pleasure to talk to many farmers since I've been here. And I know a thing or two now about farming. Not the experience of it, just the intellect part. I've understood what goes behind the scenes. And, and in farming, this would have been a huge thing for them to, to recognize and be able to relate to in James' time. So look at farmers here. The farmer patiently waits for the earth to produce its valuable crop. That's what farmers do. Because they fully depend on this crop. It's for their livelihood. So this precious fruit, it requires time to mature. We all know that the farmer doesn't plant the seed the next day, goes and harvests that crop. It takes time to mature. These things need time to develop in their proper season. And we know, farmers especially know, when seasons and what seasons things grow best. So we wait for a harvest that is ripe. We wait for a harvest that is ready. The problem is, and farmers can relate to this, 
We cannot speed up the process. We have no control over the weather. We have no control over this precious crop that we've planted. Therefore, the farmer patiently waits since he has no control over the course of events that is taking place. He waits on the early rains. He waits on the later rains that are completely, they are completely in God's hands. These early and late rains, you know what they affirm? They affirm the faithfulness of the Lord. There's a verse in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 11:14 that says, "He will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil." So too, the Christian must wait on God for his developments in within his will, right? His developments within his will and in his providence. The farmer patiently waits for the rains to return. So you and I wait patiently for the Lord to return. We, pay, we, we, we wait patiently for the deliverance from trials and hardship. You know, we wait for that answer to prayer. You know, and for him to judge our oppressors, just like he's going to do with those wicked rich from last week. We wait for that judgment. Psalm 33.20 says it short and simple. Psalm 33.20, our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. But while we wait, we're called to establish our hearts. Let me talk to you about farmers. Y'all know, again, I'll say it, I'm a nerd with documentaries, and I've seen everything I can on farming. And I've got to move to a place that's surrounded by farms. And I can tell you that a farmer does not go plant a crop and then go to the porch, put their feet up, hang their hat, and say, I'm done. I just got to wait for this crop now. That is laughable for a farmer. Because a farmer, from everything I've been told and seen, never stops working because there's always something that needs to be done on that farm. They have to prep for the crop. They have to make sure the machinery is running. They have to have the manpower, right? There's something always that needs to be done. To think that a farmer plants a crop and then goes and sits and waits with his feet up on the porch, sitting back going, I hope it comes quick. It's laughable. That's not what a farmer does. The farmer keeps working as he waits for the harvest. So do we in establishing our hearts. But we've got to understand what establish our hearts means, because that's a little vague, isn't it? To establish your heart. I want to give you some very powerful, powerful words that we are to embrace while we wait for our God. Our hearts are transformed. There's a transformation. Our hearts are set apart. Absolutely. Our hearts are being made blameless. Yep. Our hearts are confirmed. Our hearts are determined. They're fixed. Our hearts are strengthened. Our hearts become resolute. Our hearts become steadfast. And that's a biblical word. We see it all the time, steadfast. And we're going to learn about that today. These are words that we need to embrace when we think about establishing our heart while we wait for our God. And I need you to keep thinking about that farmer. The seed's been planted. He's just waiting for the rains and for this crop so there's a harvest, a great harvest. 
we too, we are in waiting. Paul wrote to the Thessalonians. <clears throat> I want to read this verse to you in 1 Thessalonians 3, 10 through 13. He wrote this verse and he said this, As we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all the saints. Did you hear that? We want to come see you face to face. It is my prayer that God directs us to you. We want to help with where you're lacking. Oh my goodness, we want to see you, but I just want you all to abound in love. I want you to abound in love, and I want God, remember all those great words, transformation, resolute. I want God to make blameless your hearts as he establishes them, to make holy your hearts as he establishes it. Because what? Because the coming of our Lord Jesus. Here, here we have the most inner part of a person. Here we want to stand firm in our faith and in God's purposes. We want to be unwavering. But we want our hearts to be steadfast in whatever is laid upon us, whatever is laid upon us until deliverance comes and there is the issue for us. When does that deliverance come? See, an established heart fortifies itself for the struggle against difficult times and circumstances. It fortifies against that struggle. In fact, this is one of the ministries of the local church, folks, is to establish each other's hearts. It's one of the local ministries here. Establishing the heart. In our patience, that is waiting on God, we establish. We keep working right here. Like the farmer, we keep working and waiting, working and waiting. It's not like we say, you know what? I'm saved. <laughs> I'm done. I got this. I'm going to find me a nice white robe. They probably have some in the back there for baptism. And I'm going to go to the highest mountain around here in North Carolina and just wait on God. You know? That's what it's like. We would not do that. We keep working and waiting, establishing. And it's interesting James brings up something very practical, <laughs> grumbling. He brings up this grumbling in the midst of this impatience. He says, do not grumble, right? As we experience hardships in this world, we are often tempted to grumble against God and grumble against one another. And grumble is a funny word, but let's call it an umbrella word because there's so many other things that go with it, like finding fault, right? Complaining, casting blame creating trouble, creating disputes. These things can be found not in patience, but in impatience. One of the funniest things I've ever had to deal with, and I, oh, I hope this applies to you, is the husband-wife remodel. It's where the husband and wife wake up one morning and go, you know what, we should redo our bathroom, right? Or we should redo the kitchen. Let's remodel something, just you and I, honey. <laughs> I've had so many conversations with this. You want to see a boiling plate of, of impatience? You want to see where things go wrong, left and right? Watch a husband and wife remodel a room together. It is hilarious. Several conversations I've had over this. 
And I thought it was cute to bring up because this is a point, and everybody's done this, where you try to do something and go, oh man, I gotta go back to the hardware store. I need this part. And you get, this doesn't fit, I gotta go back. And as you do this more and more, you continually grow more and more impatient. And guess who you're targeting? Your husband, your wife. Right? It's hilarious. Well, that scene is hilarious. Impatience is not hilarious. But what we're trying to get at here is that grumbling is a result of impatience. So there's my little husband and wife thing. But let me go, let me go on further here. Anytime, anytime that we are in the heat of the moment with impatience, again, building and growing, anytime we are in the heat of the moment, we will inevitably grumble. It's inevitable, folks. Again, it could be God who is the target, and yes, we, do, we target God when we're impatient. It could be another person that we're grumbling against, right? See, in other words, when we are facing the pressure of a difficult circumstance, the temptation to grumble is accompanied by this pressure. Did you hear that? When you have that pressure, there is an accompaniment with it, and that is part of this grumbling. This is why an established heart is needed. In fact, in Colossians 3.12, Colossians 3.12, it says, Put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. See, patience is a fruit of the Spirit, church family. It's a fruit of the Spirit, and we are to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing this fruit. An established heart will bear fruit. An unestablished heart will not. So as we put on patience, as if it were like an article of clothing we are wearing, if we put on patience, in essence, it's us being strengthened by His glorious might for all endurance. And it's the very first characteristic of love. Love is patience. We see that in 1 Corinthians. Love is patient. We can't escape the word or the fruit patience. However, a lot of us, including myself, we fall out of that and become impatient with God, impatient with each other. And grumbling is just a result of that. And James is pointing that out because we know in our grumbling we hurt others and we too, we too can be hurt. I love this verse. This is 1 Timothy 1.16. Listen to these words. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. Now, Paul's writing this. He's saying, I received for this reason. Here's, here's what he's saying. As the foremost. He's calling himself the worst sinner. I've said the same thing to you. Foremost, I'm the worst sinner. So when he calls that out, he wants you to see the patience that Jesus Christ is displaying in the life of Paul. He was a persecutor of the church. He hurt. There was murder involved of Christians because of this man. And now he is building and saving the church. It's night and day, and you can see the patience of Jesus Christ in the life of Paul, and he wants that to be an example to others who are to believe in him for eternal life. So our Lord and Savior is patient. 
See, James speaks to this because we are in danger of once again placing ourselves in a position of judgment. The coming of the Lord, right? The coming of the Lord is at hand. The judge standing at the door. We are accountable for the behaviors that stem from our impatience. So what would you rather hear? If we know the judge is right here standing at the door, right there at the door, do you want him to go, well done, you have been a faithful servant. Good job. Or do you want him to say, I don't get why you're stirring up so much trouble among your Christian brothers and sisters. Why are you doing that? I mean, we got to look at our Lord and Savior standing right there at that door. You know what else this reveals, though? This reveals all the more God's patience for us. In 2 Peter 3.9, 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Right? He is not slow to fill His promise as some count slowness, but He is patient towards you. Why? Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Aren't we grateful that God was patient with us enough that we could come to know Him as our Savior? Aren't we going to be grateful that He's patient enough to know that our family, our children, our grandchildren will come to know anybody we cross paths with? We should be grateful. Oh my goodness, thank goodness God, He, he, he waited for them to be saved. Now I know we all want to get to heaven, but we all know a lot of people that need to know Christ too. This is a beautiful verse because I love that He was patient towards me. I know the life I lived without God. And He was patient towards me. And I hope you're thinking the same, same thing. And this is why we need to embrace this fruit. Um, I personally love the prophets. I'm going to go ahead and tell you now. I love that James brings up prophets. In fact, he's going to use this as an example. And, and, and let, me, let me just say this. Why look to the prophets? <clears throat> because they often endured trials, they often endured hardships, and their lives backed up and supported the very message that they were delivering. This is why prophets are so important to us. Their lives impacted others. Their lives, they were carrying much weight. They were carrying much power. And, and this patience and suffering in times of trials, this patience uh, in their hardships, you know what they are? It's a testimony. It's a testimony to others and us. See, a person cannot persevere unless you are under trial. You cannot win a victory if you're not in the middle of a fight. You know, you can't reach a peak without first walking through a valley. So prophets are great examples of suffering and patience and those who are blessed because they remain, get this word, steadfast in those trials and hardships. I picked two I want to talk about. We're going to get to Job in a second. <clears throat> I picked Elijah. Elijah the prophet, we find him in 1 Kings, Elijah the prophet, he prophesied during a very important time in Israel's history in both the opposing of a wicked king and in dealing with false prophets of a false god called Baal. Now, Elijah's life, he faced many, many ups and downs. Uh, like a plane that faces turbulence. Uh, he was bold, and then he was fearful, right? He knew the power of God, and then he knew the sadness of depression. It was up and down for Elijah. But Elijah prophesies a drought that'll last around three and a half years. 
due to the wickedness of a king. And he prays for the rains to stop, and they do. So God warns Elijah, I need you to retreat to a particular brook because uh, there you're going to find water. And God even allowed him to be fed by ravens morning and night. So he had water and he had food. Because he too was suffering under this drought. So when the brook dries up, he is directed to go live with a widow and her son. He directs them, uh, him to them, but he asks for food and water when he arrives. And she says, listen, we have little everything's run out because they too were suffering in this drought we have little in fact what i'm making is mine and my son's very last meal we're going to eat and then we're going to die elijah says listen i don't want you to fear you that's not going to happen so do not fear the jar of flour that this lady possessed in her home it never ran out it never ran out the jug of oil it never ran out not until the rains returned this is God at work looking out for Elijah as he is facing the trials and hardships of this drought because there's a reason, there's a whole purpose. It's a wonderful story. So, it never runs out. Then, Elijah has to face off with uh, prophets uh, and, king, and this wicked king. While they're waiting for the rains to return, and replenish the land, uh, he has to face off with these prophets. And he, and the, he defeats them, of course, and he and uh, some other men, they kill these prophets. They rid this land of the wickedness and that false religion. And guess what happens? The rains return. They replenish the land. However, the king's wife is not happy. So she's coming after Elijah. So he flees to the wilderness. He's terrified. You know what he asked God to do? Just take my life. God, just take my life. But see, God took great care of Elijah. He instructed him to anoint another prophet called Elisha. And what's really neat about this story is you know Elijah did not face natural death. He was carried off to heaven. Uh, and then Elisha took over. He didn't face this death. But you've got to notice something about Elijah. He lived through the drought too. He had to suffer too. And, you know, he had to depend on God fully for his survival. And in his ministry, he had many hardships and he suffered greatly with many trials. Get, but you know what he did? He remained steadfast. He remained steadfast. Jeremiah is another one. I really like Jeremiah. He's one of the major prophets of ancient Israel. He's a key player in the Old Testament. In fact, there is more Scripture there is more Scripture that contains information about him and his 40-year ministry than in any other prophet. So as a prophet prophesying in Judah, Jeremiah made many, many enemies. Doing the work of God, he was banned from temples. He opposed prophets of kings. He opposed kings. And he was labeled a traitor. He was labeled a deserter. He infuriated priests who actually tried to kill him. He was arrested. He was beaten. He was imprisoned. He was thrown in a well and left to die. Serving God. Throughout his ministry, he had many brushes with death, yet survived. Folks, this is endurance. This is perseverance. This is long-suffering. What it is to be steadfast, which brings us right back to patience. James continued to teach that there is blessing after we have endured. 
And here is another example. This is his example. It's Job. If you are going to talk about suffering, you got to bring up Job. In the beginning of the book, he loses his wealth. He loses his family, all but his wife, who's basically saying, you need to curse God and then take your own life. You need to be dead too. He's losing this. He's, you know what else though, he's losing? His health. And we know how we can feel when our health starts to go. So the wealth, the family, his health, it's going, going gone. Job is in distress big time. He has to continually defend himself against three friends who bring up false accusations of sin in an attempt to understand why Job is suffering in such a way. It even seemed like God was against Job. That's because of the circumstances that were against him. But in the end, guess what? We see that Job is delivered and receives twice from God than what he had before. But here's the really, really cool thing about the story of Job. He didn't know what was going on behind the scenes between God and Satan. He had no idea. Through the whole ordeal, Job maintained his innocence. Now, next to Jesus' suffering, I believe we are hard-pressed to find a greater example of suffering than Job. When his health was in danger, after he lost everything, friends who were calling him a hypocrite, right? Friends who were attempting to find out what sin or sins caused this downfall. Job endured. And here's what he didn't know. Satan predicted that Job would get impatient with God. This is exactly what Satan wanted. He wanted Job to grow impatient with God because he knew the results of that impatience. Satan wanted the church that James is writing to to grow impatient with God. He wants for you and I to grow impatient with God. See, the book of Job teaches us something. That God has a much higher purpose in suffering than just the punishment of sin. There were many wonderful results. Many wonderful results that Job experienced during this great trial. But the biggest is this, that God was glorified in Job's suffering in his perseverance, in his endurance, in his steadfastness, in his patience. See, for Job and for the rest of the prophets, for James, the church he's writing to, for you and I, we cannot learn endurance if there is nothing to endure. We are to learn from these examples. Romans 15.4 says this. Romans 15.4, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. We are to learn from these prophets. Now, this is a weird verse we go to. It says, do not swear. Again, it's like grumbling. We're throwing something in here. And I get kind of where James is coming from now. It says, but above all. Now, but above all is not leading us to believe that this is the most important element of this letter. This style of writing was used by the ancient Greek writers. It's a transition to kind of a section that is, is final. It's like you and I saying, well, to wrap things up, okay, so but above all, it says do not swear. Now how does this part of the letter pertain to the rest? We're not talking about swearing as in dirty language. 
We're talking about invoking the name of God or a substitute for His name. Okay, it could be a substitute. To guarantee the truth of what we are saying. Right? It's our truthfulness. This Here's our truthfulness, folks. It should be dependable. Our truthfulness should be constant. Where we do not need an oath to support what we're saying. We shouldn't need an oath. Our yes should be yes. A simple no should mean no. See, the Jewish people were known for making various oaths to support and back up their statements. However, not to blaspheme the name of God, they would swear by other things such as heaven. They'd swear by earth. They'd swear even by themselves. See, when suffering, people are prone to deceptive speech. We are, including making promises or declaring oaths, which could lead us to compromise our faith, which could lead us also into further despair. Impatience can lead to deceitful reasoning. And I believe that we've probably all experienced that. Just like in our grumbling, it's easy to say things that we do not mean. And this also applies to our swearing by God or any substitute of His name. See, our Christian character should lead us to the simple affirmation of yes, meaning yes, and no, meaning no. Right? We should not need an oath to accompany it accompaniment that. And that's kind of what James wants us to understand. That we, in the heat of the moment, can deceive ourselves with deceitful speech. Whether it's the grumbling or whether it's declaring an oath. So if we are to endure the trials and hardships that we will meet, our faith, our integrity, our endurance will need spirit-powered strength in our waiting for the imminent return of Christ. See, it's practical theology. Follow me for a second. In light of knowing that there is an end, in light of knowing that there is an end where God Himself has established a day where He will culminate His whole redemptive plan, this whole process where He will culminate it, we don't know when this will be. We cannot predict when this will be, but we are certain of this day coming. In light of this, right, we are to live each day in this kind of patience, waiting on God, knowing that there's an end. See, one of the purposes in suffering is to build Christian character and to mature all of us. James, the whole book of James is about you and I maturing, not being perfect, but the maturity that perfection, striving for it, working towards it. It's about maturing us. And we can see this in the prophets who were mentioned today. We can see this maturity. And I'm going to tell you now, it's a great example for us to learn from. So as we wait on God, like the prophets did, as we wait on God, like the farmer is waiting on that precious fruit, we have to establish our hearts. So, we allow God to transform and strengthen our hearts so that we can remain steadfast in faith and stand against the struggles we face until our deliverance, until that fruit. So the Bible says, be patient, therefore, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word always. 
Lord, we want to thank you for the illustration that's so relevant to us, Father, the farmer. We want to thank you, Lord, for the prophets that have come before us. You've directed us to your word. You want us to look at examples, Father. We want to thank you for your patience. We want to thank you for the patience of your son. We want to thank you for Paul writing these letters, Father, explaining how patience is such a a virtue and so important, Father. We need to embrace it, Lord, because we're waiting on you. But the waiting is not in vain. Father, there is work to be done, and that is establishing our hearts. Lord, we work. We work while we wait. Father, I pray for this church right now. I pray for each and every heart, Lord, to be established, Father. I pray that the heart can be established so that it remains steadfast in whatever is laid upon us, whatever trials we have to face, whatever struggles come our way. We remain steadfast as we wait for you. This is the patience you desire for us. This is the fruit that you want in our lives. So this is our prayer today, Lord. Help us. Help us remain steadfast in your word and in your love and in the faith that you've blessed us with. Help us remain steadfast no matter what comes. Lord, we thank you for this glorious day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this service and this body of believers, Lord Jesus. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.